Listening to Pineapple Radio on Full Service Radio, broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan in Washington, D.C. We're your hosts, Atara and Ariel, and we're the co founders of Pineapple Collaborative, which is a community of over 100,000 women across the country who love food and drink. Uh, we're so excited to be here in the studio today with our guest, Gail Taylor, who we'll introduce in just a moment, but uh, we wanted to chat with her for um, a long time now, yeah. honestly. I remember when Pineapple was just a uh, fledgling side project. We had reached out to Gail about participating in an event, and though the timing didn't quite work out, um, we're grateful that years later, we now can sit down with her and share her story with all of you. And spoiler alert, if you ever want to talk to a farmer, do it in the off season, <laughs> which is where we are right now. And we'll talk more about that in just a minute. Before we introduce Gail and the topic of our show, we wanted to talk a little bit about this podcast. We see you listening, we see your reviews, and we're so excited uh, that you've been following along. And just a reminder that if you know if you listen to this show and you feel inspired and you learn something and you want to share it with friends and you've learned about new women, new ideas, if we're describing you at all, please, please review us. It's so easy. You can do it on the Apple Podcast. Um, it helps us with our sponsors. It helps us get discovered. Um, and it's really important to the survival of our show. And with that, we wanted to actually call out two new people who reviewed us, and we're very grateful for that. The first is BK Food and Farms, who said, I love how nearly every episode in some way focuses on the issues people and our planet face in the food system. Plus, they always include opportunities for action. This is perfect for those who love food and want to dive deeper into the complexities of producing it, eating it, and much, much more. Thank you, BK Food and Farms. And next is The Move 201, who said, Do you want to learn interesting things about food wellness and our ag system? Do you want to learn about dismantling patriarchal values surrounding food and body image? Do you want to hear from a diverse group of powerful women? <laughs> then listen to Pineapple Radio. I love this show. Thank you, The Move 201. Please review us. Cool. So it's been a minute since we have started our radio shows with our pantry picks, but we're bringing it back in the new year because who doesn't love um, something that is women made uh, in their fridge or pantry? Yeah. Uh, clearly that's our beat. So Atara, uh, what, what is your pantry pick of the week? My pantry pick of the week is, uh, a product that I've been really excited about and adoring for a long time. It's Diasporco Turmeric by Sana Javeri Kadri, who is a friend of ours. Um, yeah, I love using it in all of my recipes that call for turmeric. Um, if any of you have made Hashtag the stew by Allison Roman. Um, it is a delicious canvas for Sana's Diaspora Co. turmeric, and it's all single origin, supporting farmers in India. It's ethical, delicious, beautiful packaging, and we really love that business. What about you? 
Uh, so mine's a fridge pick, actually, and uh, I've been loving uh, little wild things, microgreens. So she, uh, Mary Ackley and her team of badass women are uh, farming microgreens here in D.C., and it is a uh, really wonderful way to add brightness to my meals in the winter. Um, so I have a few ounces of her cilantro microgreens, which everything now tastes like cilantro, but I kind of like that. If you <laughs> um, like cilantro, that's great. And I'm going to make a cuckoo, a Persian Ooh. omelet uh, kind of dish later this week using sauna's turmeric, actually, and a ton of these cilantro microgreens plus all the other random herbs that I have left over in my fridge that is the best dish to use up all of your herbs by the way and pro tip um, I don't know Gail what you think about this but the way that I save my herbs for literally weeks is I put them in a like mason jar with water in the fridge and I swear they last for weeks and it's the best thing um, because then you don't have wilty parsley after five days yep Awesome. Well, I want some of that cuckoo, to be honest. Um, Share your favorite pantry items with us by using hashtag Pine4Pantry. We'll reshare them. We'll write you back. We love seeing what you stock in your kitchens, too. Uh, So share that with us. Yeah, it was really fun. Last week, we saw one of Chrissy Teigen's tweets where she was just... (laughs) essentially saying how staring at the contents of her fridge sparked joy and uh that that definitely resonated with us here yes and in fact she liked that post which made our weekend yeah all right well now switching gears to our radio show and our conversation today as we mentioned earlier we have uh, gail taylor here with us welcome gail to the line thank you hi Um, And so Gail uh, is a farmer. She owns Three Part Harmony Farm here in D.C. and started it in 2012. And prior to that, um, her background was in activism and policy advocacy. So uh, she comes at her farming with um, lots of knowledge about not only her work on the farm, but like how it relates to um, our society and activism and policy. So we're really excited to talk with you about your experience, how you got here, what it's like to farm in D.C., and um, how we can create a better food system through supporting you know, farms in our neighborhood. Yeah, and furthermore, we have uh, an event coming up with Leah Pennyman of Soul Fire Farm. We've been really inspired by her uh, and you, and you know we understand that it's crucial now more than ever, uh, but throughout history too, to understand who is growing our food and the complex racial history of agriculture in our country, the inequities farm workers face, uh, especially farm workers of color, and we are excited to talk to you about that today, Gail. Great. Um, So let's get right into it. And can you tell us about your food journey? What was your, um, what was food like for you growing up? Sure. Well, um, I grew up in a house where my mom made dinner on the table, you know, every night. Um, She's a very versatile cook. She um, didn't use a lot of recipes. What was in our kitchen, what was in the pantry, that's sort of what she put together. If we were out of something, she definitely didn't go to the store. Um, as a kid, we lived sort of in the middle of nowhere, Rock Island, Illinois, 
and we had one car and my dad took it to work. So if we didn't have something in the refrigerator, my mom substituted, which now looking back on it, she was like the penultimate CSA member, you know, it's like, if you don't have this and then this comes in your CSA box, then that's what you use. So that's sort of like how I learned how to cook for my mom was just a lot of substitution, a lot of creativity, um, a lot of bulk meals on the cheap in the Midwest. Do you remember any of those dishes that you, you know, where she substituted an ingredient and felt really inspired by what she had on hand? Yeah. And this, the dish that still, when I go home to my mom, this is what she always has in the refrigerator is her uh, vegetable soup, which um, back then in the eighties, I guess was more like a crock pot kind of a dish with a big piece of beef in it and all different kinds of root vegetables you know, whatever was there was in the pantry, that's what she would make. Now I'm a vegetarian, so she splits it in half and um, puts half on the side for me without the without the side of beef. But yeah, mom's vegetable soup, nourishing, tastes like love. Um, and you were just home for like the winter holidays, right? Yeah, I took an extended vacation this winter and spent a month living with my parents. So that was the longest time that I've stayed with them since. I was in college, I guess, (laughs) almost 20 years ago. That was back in Illinois? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, what is the, uh, well, we'll we'll get to the off season in just a second. I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, So before you were farming, you were working in um, policy and activism work. Uh, Tell us about that and then how that brought you to three-part harmony. Sure. Well, I um, studied U.S. foreign policy in Latin America in college And um, like many people, moved to D.C. to sort of do that kind of work. So I came here as a young 20-something, a transplant, um, did the activism thing, protested on Capitol Hill, um, did a lot of work sort of advocating for issues in other countries and telling people on Capitol Hill what they should do to make the world a better place. And um, after doing that for a few years, I took a little break and went to volunteer in Guatemala. And um, I really just was going through this quarter-life crisis. I wanted to figure out something that I could do that was more tangible, hands-on, that I could say, I made this, or I did this, or I'm contributing to something in the world. I'm not going to these buildings with all this stuffy things happening and telling you what you should do and how you should change policy. So I started trying to figure out, how do I get a trade? How do I um, have an identity where I'm like a plumber or a teacher or an electrician? Something just like that I felt like was more hands-on and direct. Um, and none of those outlets really seemed to speak to me, sort of like plumbing, electricians, beyond my scope of capacity, and, and I don't have enough patience to be a teacher. So while I was going through this journey, I just started volunteering at a farm um, in exchange for vegetables. I was unemployed and um, wanted to learn more about where my food came from. Part of that food journey earlier is that I had become a vegetarian Um, having to do with seeing people in my family really um, have a lot of health-related issues that that were connected to what we were eating or not eating. So I became a vegetarian as a teenager, um, and in this moment, those two things sort of aligned. I was interested in learning more about where my food came from, and I was looking for a more meaningful way to plug into this world around me. Um, And the people I volunteered for offered me a job. And so that just sort of became this rabbit hole where I went part time and then full time. And then, you know, you graduate and it's time to start your own farm. Mm. And where which farm were you working on at that time? That was at Claggett Farm. So Claggett Farm is um, a really interesting 
um, farm. It's just about 15 miles outside of Washington, D.C., so it's the closest farm to us in the city. Mm-hmm. And um, I did ride my bike from the metro once, but it's it's easy to drive to. Um, and it's a nonprofit farm. The land trust is managed by the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, and they have a partnership with the Capital Area Food Bank. So between 40 and 50% of all the vegetables grown get distributed to Capital Area Food Bank agencies. Um, and under the tutelage of Carrie Vaughn, who's the um, vegetable production manager, I and actually many, a handful of women have gone on to start our own farms um, she is an unsung um, farmer mentor hero in our region. I think a lot of people don't pay enough attention to her, um, but it just speaks volumes to see how many of us have gone on to start our own operations, I think. That's amazing. And so you started Three Part Harmony <clears throat> in 2012. Yeah. It's now 2019. Tell us a little bit about the evolution of Three Part Harmony and how the mission and the work has evolved. Sure. Well, I just started out after having um, learned how to be a farmer under Carrie, it had been five years, five and a half years, and I just mainly wanted to stop commuting. <laughs> you know, driving 45 minutes to work at an organic farm just didn't seem like what I should be doing um, with my life. And, and I was commuting from Adams Morgan, actually, every day. So the first and foremost was just like the desire to take this thing that I had learned how to do and do it in my community for my community. So that started the process of looking for land um, closer in inside the city to try to start a farm. And so how did you find the land for three-part harmony? It was kind of a multi-year journey um, that ended up with me being on this two-acre property in northeast D.C. right now, but I basically did what every young farmer looking for land does. I started a spreadsheet, and, (laughs) um, you know, I would put the um, different parcels and um, how big they were and the pros and the cons. I made this whole list of, like, what I was looking for, um, who owned it, and and used um, the D.C. tax, you know, document to figure out who owned the land and, and contact them to try to see if I could have a farm there. Um, and I just went down the line from the highest priority on down until somebody finally said yes. Mm. But in the meantime, you know, I was starting the business and I was looking for land. All of these things were sort of happening at the same time. And so people would approach me and say, I know you're looking for land. And in the meantime, do you want to grow in my backyard? You mm-hmm. know, the, um, I started, but the best plot I had was at the Catholic worker, um, the Dorothy Day Catholic worker in Petworth. I'd had a relationship with them since I moved to D.C., and their gardener was going away for a while, and they asked me if I would be the garden caretaker there, which turned out to be a great gap for the first three years that I was waiting to get the lease on the property where I am now, which required us, you know, to pass a piece of legislation. So it was just, you know, people approached me even and said, do you want to use our backyard? And and that's how the backyard CSA started. So I would ride my bike around from all of these plots Um, different days of the week with my tools and then attach a bike um, trailer to the back on harvest day and go from garden to garden, bring them to my house, wash them on the porch and distribute them to my six friends. (laughs) Yeah, that that was the first year. (laughs) So how many kind of affiliate gardens or farms do you have or did you have at that time? At that time, three, three or four, I guess. And then in my house, the greenhouse is in my backyard. 
it's an interesting model to kind of think about all of the arable green space and instead of having like a centralized you know farm to build capacity all over the city yeah coming from Claggett which is the only growing experience I'd ever had it's a 285 acre farm Mm -hmm. right with almost 20 acres of vegetables so when I made the decision to come to the city I drew up a business plan and sketched a farm that was like five to ten contiguous acres and there is that in the city but it's not necessarily accessible to the people here a lot of it's that's this is a whole other I guess show but a lot of the land in the city is owned by the federal government um, and not accessible for us to be able to plant gardens for ourselves so yeah finding that five acres real I quickly realized that wasn't going to be possible and Mm -hmm. this was another model that I had seen in other cities and what was that experience like Uh, because it sounds you know cool I would say from a consumer's perspective or where I'm sitting not being a farmer but I imagine there's also like a lot of challenges dealing with so many different kinds of you know, pieces of land and different owners and having to transport it? It was fun. It was certainly fun to connect to each garden and each property owner in a different way. It was fun to go to different neighborhoods. I met people just from riding my bike up and down an alley once a week. I would meet people that I never would have met otherwise. That was fun. Um, But it, you know, you can only do it on a small scale. Mm-hmm. To some extent, all small vegetable farming is a hobby, but really when you're doing it on three backyards, that's definitely a hobby. And there was a lot of just bike riding time that was part of my everyday that would have gotten old if I had kept on doing it. Right. So tell us about the land that you're on now mm-hmm. and how that came to be. So the two-acre property that we lease now is like the dream farm in the city, for me anyway. Right. I said I made that spreadsheet with the criteria the number one thing was I wanted to ride my bike to work. Mm -hmm. So I didn't look at places that were outside of a 15-minute bike ride of my home. And um, this place at Michigan and 4th Street Northeast is right around 15, 20-minute bike ride from where I live. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a flat, for the most part, piece of property, which is unusual. Um, There's never been a building there, so there were no contaminants. Um, There's a water source, and the property owners are an order of priests who are very amenable to having vegetables being grown on the property. In fact, they own land in um, near St. Louis, Missouri, that is also a vegetable farm that they support. Wow. So it was just all around really, really lucky. And so worth waiting for over those three years to get that lease. Yeah. And they helped, you know, when I first approached them about growing vegetables, the head priest there, Father Seamus Finn, he was really excited about the idea and wanted to just jump in, you know, both feet first. But their lawyers sort of said, whoa, take a step back a little bit. There are some things we need to look at before this can go through. And one of the biggest issues was um, the property tax issue. They were concerned that if they leased that property to a farm and changed the nature of the activity on the land from religious to growing vegetables, that the Office of Tax and Revenue would come after them for the bill which they had never paid, right, because they're a religious institution. So they had 100 years, property taxes have never been paid on this parcel. Mm. Um, But the triggering event of leasing to the farm would have possibly brought them a $50,000 a year tax bill. And they didn't want to pay that, obviously. And I couldn't pay that, right? Like, that's a lot of cucumbers. So (laughs) there's no way that anybody can do anything but 
build condos and have a liquor store in this city on that kind of tax rate. So that launched us into what became a three-year campaign to create what we have now, the Farm Bill, um, which allows for exempt properties to pass that exemption on to a farmer. Um, So that's, that's how my lease reads. And it's, it's really interesting that, you know, through this desire to learn more about where your food comes from and learn this trade, you kind of experienced all of the systematic challenges that urban farmers face. So can you tell us more about, like, your journey through policy with the D.C. Urban Ag Bill and more? Yeah, and I mean, that's ironic, right? Because I got into farming to get out of policy. Right. right. <laughs> um, but the only way to get this lease was to um, campaign for a bill. Um I guess the journey of three-part harmony farm, my journey as a person, um, personally and professionally, I just sort of have this philosophy of like never do anything alone. (laughs) So the first thing that I did when I realized that I was going to face this barrier of not being able to get the lease, I I looked for help. And um, I had already been a client of the pro bono law clinic at the American University. Um, The students there were helping me navigate this basically wild, wild west of when I started Three Part Harmony Farm, there were no farms registered in D.C. And so the law students were helping me figure out what option in that drop-down menu you choose, even when DCRA says, what kind of business are you, right? Mm Because vegetable farm wasn't an option. So in the middle of that journey, I approached them and I said, hey, listen, we have this bigger thing that just came up. Um, DC doesn't have a farm bill. We need one. I can't have a lease without one. And I want to know if you guys would, you know, go to bat for me and start doing a little bit of research to figure out what an appropriate piece of legislation would look like. Um, And I went through two cycles of the three L's and a really amazing advisor there at AU. And they even did a little bit of travel and looked at urban farming in other cities and what was happening um, with conservation legislation that had been used even in the rural areas to help save family farms across the country, right? That's basically the format that we used. We were thinking about, um, well, land in the city isn't the only thing that farmers are having trouble getting access to. Family-owned farms are getting sold and turned into McMansions all over. So what was the strategy that they used, and how do we make that appropriate to our scale? So that, that's what they did. The students did a lot of research, and then we approached a couple of city council members and introduced legislation. Cool. And I actually had the opportunity to testify for the 2013 D.C. Urban Ag Bill. Oh, yeah. Um, and that experience was really cool because there was so much coordination between people working in the city, activists, organizations. And I remember that, I think it was Lauren Schwader Beal in her testimony was talking about how Cleveland was had a really interesting model for urban ag and the tax breaks and programs for urban farmers there. Yeah, Lauren from DC Greens, it, it was, um, you know, I every spring I would start this journey and say, okay, now this year we're going to campaign for this bill, and this year it's going to pass, and this year I'm going to get my lease. And then I would get to the end of the year, and, and again, I would have to make that hard decision as like, am I going to keep pouring my savings into this and keep farming on that land without a proper lease? Um, and then the, the last, the third and final year in February, I think, I went to the D.C. Greens office on P Street, and I said, listen, I need help. My greenhouse is going to be in production next week, and I just can't do this again. I cannot go through another round 
of policy advocacy when I really just need to be outside right now. Mm. So they um, they ended up coming in and doing the final push, which was really, really crucial. Yeah. And that's, uh, I mean, something that I've only seen on the outside from the D.C. like food policy farming community, but there's like so much collaboration and Mm -hmm. people are trying to align interests so that, you know, when you're when going to city council uh, that, you know, everyone's to the extent possible, their their needs, interests are taken into account. Yeah, and it was actually their idea to introduce a companion piece of legislation that created the Food Policy Council that we have now. I hadn't really thought about what would be necessary after I got my lease. I mean, I wanted to make sure that the legislation was broad enough to encompass other farmers besides just vegetable farmers. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, once I signed my lease in 2015, I was like, okay, I just birthed this thing from, you know, beyond what I had in short supply and and I just needed to get the farm in the black again Mm -hmm. Um, but the creation of that food policy council is what has given the whole thing legs and a life beyond three-part harmony farm I want to come back to the DC food policy council but I just want to say it's so inspiring to hear your journey of you know all right I want to first getting into farming and then saying I want to open up my own farm and in order to do that finding this kind of perfect land but in order to lease that land then going through this legislative process like that is not an easy uh endeavor and so um I I'm just really floored I think and and seeing how like you as a citizen and entrepreneur takes that on and the policy changes it's like good news. I feel like I need some good news like that. So um, anyway, uh, I want to talk about three-part harmony because we've gotten to how you got that land, and that was 2015? Yeah, well, I started growing vegetables in 2012, but I got the lease in 2015. You got the lease in 2015. Yeah. Okay, so um, tell us about the farm. Like, What is your mission? Uh, what's the core business? Um, and then what the vision is. The, oh, I should have looked at the website and the thing that I wrote in 2011 <laughs> right during my visioning board. But um, you know, the basic idea is I wanted to grow food for people. Um, I became passionate about learning how to grow vegetables um, in a way that is good for the environment and felt meaningful to me. And I wanted to just bring that to my home. That's I just wanted to transplant that experience that I had had at Claggett and bring it to within a bike ride of where I lived. That's that's it. And and at that time in 2012, we didn't have any production farms in D.C. I mean, we still don't really have that many, but um, we had a lot of educational and um, farms mainly, especially, I mean, people know that D.C. is really known for um, elementary school education when it comes to gardening because of city blossoms here and the, you know, the youth garden. So, yeah, we didn't we didn't really have anybody who said, I'm just going to plant vegetables and grow vegetables and feed ourselves. And that that was my idea. Food food security, food sovereignty was really in the front of my mind. That's really inspiring. Um, and, you know, we think a lot about the local food economy and how we can subsist on food and support growers in our, you know, in our community. Um, Can you tell us what food sovereignty means to you? Sure. Yeah. To me, food sovereignty just means that people um, can 
choose the food that they want to eat that makes them feel good, that makes them feel healthy, and that they have a right to engage with that in a way that um, is keeping in mind their own self-determination, that they, that they get to choose, which I think is a really important part of it. Mm-hmm. And so what's your core business? Like you've alluded to your CSA um, and that is through the growing season. Um, but tell us about kind of what what's there. So the community supported agriculture program that we do, it's it's how I learned how to farm. Claggett is 95% CSA sales. It basically is the idea that if I'm going to commit myself to growing vegetables, I need people to commit that you're going to buy them for the year. Mm-hmm. And um, one way to commit to buying them is by paying ahead of time. And so that's basically the principle of that model. Cool. And how has that grown since you started? Well, I mean, like I said before, I started with six people who came to my front porch. <laughs> they were all people who knew me, um, my friends, my former roommates, people from my church. Um, and, uh, and then to now today we're going to sign up or this year we'll sign up 280 members, um, who will pick up at seven different locations on three different days in the city. Um, the biggest change was in 2015. Once I went from growing on that property in Northeast DC, but not being able to sell those vegetables. So relying on the backyard CSA model for the CSA to having a lease and being able to start cultivating there on that property um, was when for the first time I remember the first time someone came to the CSA pickup and I had to introduce myself to them. And that happened in that time when we finally were able to advertise and you know I was finally able to incorporate the vegetables from that plot into the CSA. Mm-hmm. And so what kind of produce do you grow? We now grow mostly greens, roots, herbs, and flowers. Um, I've started to, I started to take out of my rotation anything that needs to stay in the ground for a long time and you only get one harvest from especially. Um, Sort of on a parallel track to starting the farm, I also started a farmer co-op with a business partner. And um, our idea was that we all could collaborate and work together, but we would get to focus on something different. And I just sort of, like I said before, I fell into this by accident, but it turns out I'm good with plants. And I just, I like to have my hands in the soil. I'm good with plants. I want to stick to that. Uh, My business partner and I went to the same beekeeping class. And at the end, I was like, that's good. I'm glad I know how to keep bees. (laughs) I'm also glad that you want to be in charge of that. (laughs) And I can call you when the hive swarms. Um, So, yeah, so we we came up with this collaboration that we called Community Farming Alliance. And we just sort sort of started all contributing different things. Um, And that came also from our background of working at a worker-owned co-op in College Park. So the idea of um, doing something cooperatively was always in the back of our minds. And we brought in um, a medicinal herbalist, and we brought in um, other vegetable farmers. And so now today the way it looks is if Three Part Harmony Farm is growing the lettuce and the kale and the carrots and the beets, someone else who has 20 acres can have chickens and butternut squash and sweet potatoes, things that take up a lot of space. So it's, it's sort of like, you know, sitting down with 12 farmers and doing crop planning together is way beyond our capacity right now. Um, but each year I feel like we get a little bit closer to being able to work and plan together. And the main four vegetable farms that contribute, we're all going to sit down in two weeks and have a meeting and possibly 
you know, get a little bit closer to being able to work together and figure out who you do this better and you do that better um, to make it be more intentional. So with the farmer co-op, I mean, you're talking a lot about the collaboration you have in planning and uh, like crop diversification. So for consumers, when they sign up for your CSA, are they getting a, you know something from all of these farms uh, yields or how does that work? Yeah. So three part Harmony Farms CSA is like 70 to 75 percent produce from our farm. And then I buy in from the other farmers the other things. Um, and we do CSA pickup two different ways. There's a market-style pickup where everything is spread out on a table, and I say pick your 12 items, and you get to pick the items. Um, another option is called like a porch pickup, which is a more traditional way of getting a CSA share. You go to your neighbor's porch, and you grab a box, and then you leave, and I get to pick what's in your box. Um, so those are the two ways. And in both ways, you are getting something from the member contributors. Um, for a lot of reasons. One is because since I cut out from my rotation a lot of those crops that I'm relying on from the other farmers, I have to buy those tomatoes and those peppers and you know potatoes in the summertime. So in the summertime, your box is a lot coming from the partner farms. But the other reason why we did that is because I really wanted to make sure that people were getting a wider variety of items in their share and we especially are focused on things that are not just vegetables. Because I think, you know, you hear a lot of people drop out of the CSA because they feel guilty that it's the time to go pick up the next week's share and they still have vegetables from the week before. And Zachary and I just had this idea of like, okay, well, the way to get around that is to put something in the share that's not highly perishable, that's not just a cruciferous vegetable, <laughs> something that would be exciting for people like apples mm-hmm. um, and pears, cheese. That's, microgreens. That's Zachary Curtis? Yeah, right. Cool. Who is the us. founder of um, Good Sense Farm and Apiary. So cool. that's the apiary is where the honey came in. Amazing. Very cool. And so before we're going to go to break as we kind of like switch topics, but um, I know you're a huge proponent of the CSA and I think not everyone um, understands from a consumer perspective, like the importance of CSA is for farmers and like farm, um, you know, the, the economics of a farm. So can you talk to us about like the importance of that and, you know, maybe why we should all be a part of a CSA this year? Yeah, I know it's asking a lot. And um, every time when the CSA members come and get their share, I'm just so grateful for everyone who makes that leap because it's so much easier just to go to the store or to go on, go to the farmer's market on a sunny day. Um, not the the reason why the community-supported agriculture model is so important is because we farmers are fully committed to giving you the best of what we have, the bounty, everything, but we can't do that. We can't get from March to November if we don't have a guaranteed outlet of sales. And if I'm a bigger farm and I can write a contract with Walmart or, you know, and ship my pallets to somewhere and and know that my 10,000 watermelons are going to be sold, then that's great. That could be a model. Um, but right now what you have in this country is, you know, 15 years ago they told us we're in a farmer crisis. The average age of the farmer is, you know, in the 60s and getting up, going up every year, every year. So people like me who didn't grow up farming but wanted to answer this call, we 
did our due diligence. We learned how to grow vegetables. We learned how to do it ethically. And we started our own farms. And now our scale, the way that we are, one acre, two acre, five acres, we have diversified vegetables, but we don't have guaranteed income streams. And the way that we worked around that was by trying to get our customers to commit to buying from us in advance. And that means like if I have a lot of vegetables sitting on a table on a farmer's market day and it's a holiday weekend and everybody's out of town, what am I going to do with that perishable stuff? I'm happy to take it to the soup kitchen if my bills are getting paid. But if I can't meet payroll because it was a rainy farmer's market Saturday, that there goes my business after a few times. Or you add into that, like the year that we just had, 2018 was like the worst farming year on record. I've only been doing this for 13 years, so I can't like exaggerate that much. But, um, but for sure, like it was really devastating. You know, we're all just like sitting around and scratching our heads and saying, like, 2018, let's not do that again, because just the weather was right. so so bad. And so, um, yeah, the having the customers be with you from the beginning to the end is a way to be able to go into the next year. That's basically our crop insurance. Mm. You know? Yeah. So CSA is the single most important way to support your local farmer. And it helps that you get a beautiful package of produce, the bounty. Um, and it's that it's your way of guaranteeing that they will have their income and be able to make payroll, pay their expenses, you name it. Yeah. Um, and I would say sometimes it's not, right? Like sometimes the what you're getting in the share is the same thing that you had the week before. And then um, you get the opportunity to find out why that is. And I can tell you, well, I tried five times working from dawn to dusk, reseeding this thing that got drowned out again. We had 20 inches too many of rain last year. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so <clears throat> also being part of a CSA is... Um, is an educational opportunity, I think, for you to learn not just what grows where you live, but what's possible to do in this era of climate change. Because the shiny vegetables that get misted on in the produce section at the grocery store is not a very realistic, um, has not set realistic expectations about what we actually can do on a real farm. Mm-hmm. Right. Thank you for sharing that. Um, we are here with Gail Taylor, the founder of Three Part Harmony, farmer extraordinaire. We're talking to her about community agriculture and food justice. This is Pineapple Radio. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back.
Hi there. Welcome back. This is Pineapple Radio. I'm one of your hosts, Atara, and we are talking to Gail Taylor, one of our favorite farmers in D.C. who owns a farm and a community agriculture project called Three Part Harmony. Uh, We're talking to Gail today all about community-supported agriculture and her journey in farming. What we want to talk about now for the last segment is really all about farming and food justice. We've been really inspired by lots of women in this field like Gail, Lee Pennyman from Soulfire Farm and, and lots of others, Karen Washington, who talk about the interesting and very crucial topic of racism and and food and farming. Um, so Gail, our first question for you on this subject is, how do you think farming can be a pathway to dismantling racism and bringing about food justice to in so many ways in so many communities? I think food is obviously a really important um, political issue. And, and also, I, I think I mentioned this earlier, the irony of like, that I got into farming to get out of politics because I just wanted to go to work every day and do a job. Um, And then I just realized, like, there is nothing more political than access to food, access to water, access to land. Those are all of the single most important issues of our time. And and for the next, this current generation right now, that's what everything is going to be about. Um, And when, you know, when you talk about food sovereignty and food justice, you're talking about people being able to Um, access food in a way that feels good for them whether that be growing their own food which I think a lot of people talk about I I think it's important to remember not everybody is is going to want to do that and has to do that but if they want to that people should have access to space to be able to grow their own food that people should have access to the people who are growing their own food Um, which is I think why the CSA model also draws me in just the idea that I get to see my children grow up, right? Or like from in the womb to children being tall enough to grab vegetables off the table themselves and put them straight into their mouth is like, I get to see this community be nourished and thrive from that interaction. Um, That taking away the sterile environment of a grocery store, I think is part of food justice because it's about the relationships. And what are your relationships with your customers? I mean, you were alluding to it before where you see them at pickups, but are they as part of the CSA, like coming to the farm on certain like visit days or, um, you know, what does that experience look like since they're not going to a grocery store? Well, the interesting thing I think about being a farmer in the city is that I have a relationship with all of the customers, even if they're not mine. I am out there in these streets riding my bike, and at a stoplight, I might see someone and wave. Um, when I'm at a, a party or a social gathering, I see my customers. I see the other farmers' customers, right? Like everybody who's driving a truck into the city and setting up a stall on a Saturday and leaving that same Saturday, um, they're not engaging with this city's customer base the same way that I am. I see you in the grocery store. I see you when I'm in the park with my goddaughter, I see the people, I have a relationship with you that's outside of just that I grow your food. And I I think that's really meaningful for me. How has the food community uh, developed in DC over the years? And uh, I think 
talking mostly about farming as well as like the like food policy and even food justice piece um you were talking about how you're like one of the only production farms in dc and um you know has that changed are there are there more production farms now or still you're the only one i think the the food environment in dc are two different things there's first of all a really strong customer base when i first started farming you know we had an 800 person waiting list for our csa Um, people farmers will drive three four hours to come to the markets in this city Um, We're really well known for having an educated customer base that will pay good money for fresh produce. And that's something that is really important in driving the local food economy. Um, Inside the city itself, I think D.C. is subject to the nonprofit industrial complex, whether it's in the food industry or any industry. We just have a really big nonprofit mentality here. And that's part of how the city functions besides the government is the non-government. And so, you know, within the urban farming scene, that's just really prevalent. There, there are a lot of nonprofit organizations, and I think that it's a tricky gray area where the production farm and the nonprofit farm sort of are intertangled. And I think now you're seeing that happening more and more, and I think we are now having to figure out what that means and what that's going to look like and how we interact together. Because mm-hmm. the, the problem is, like, there's no such thing as a for-profit farm. The vegetable farm is not making profit, right? Everything is going back into the business. So um, it's not like we are that far apart. It's just that some people are raising money from foundations to run their urban farm. And I'm going to my part-time job <laughs> to, fund my part- to fund my farm. Um, but it's not like... Either of them are any more sustainable than than the other, and I think that we all have to be really honest about that and try to figure out what the next seven years is going to look like. Do you think there's a a misconception about that kind of paradigm where, I mean, are there customers that think that you make a profit from your farm and are working there full-time and can easily kind of, you know, support the business that way? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of... um, I mean, there are a lot of good reasons why we don't know who our farmers are and what their day-to-day lives are like. We That that uh, um, luxury has been taken from us over, over the years, and now we're slowly getting that back. But, yeah, in the same way that I feel like I'm the farm ambassador because, um, you know, all of the farm's customers see me on my bike, uh, I also am the person who is the face of this is what a small family farm looks like. When I describe my economic reality of being a farmer, which is, by the way, a lifestyle, not a job, um, it's not any different than my peers, you know? And everyone is going through the same thing. What is a job that I can do in December and January and February to make money to pay the bills in the off season? Um, how am I going to pay the mortgage, the insurance? How am I going to buy the supplies in February when I'm not harvesting until May? No matter if you're in the city or if you're in Upper Marlboro, Maryland, all of us small vegetable farms are facing the same thing. And it just so happens that I'm the face that everybody sees because I'm here in the city. Mm -hmm. And so I have this, like, sometimes, to be honest, exhausting role of having to explain to somebody, I can't do that thing because I have to go to my job (laughs) because that's how I pay my rent. Um, Vegetable sales are not 
going to earn anybody a big living. The only way that you can do that is if you have a big business doing it, right? But isn't that the antithesis of what my farm and all of our farms are trying to do? So we have these duly competing things where we're trying to say we want to do it a different way. We don't want exploitation of other humans to be part of what our model is, our economic model. But then at the same time, the capitalist economy isn't quite there yet to be able to pay us for our vegetables what it costs to produce them and we're just stuck in this limbo Mm -hmm. and i think the consumer also believes that their you know their beautiful produce should be a certain price and they're not they don't understand that you know when they're buying something that's cheap they're cutting all sorts of corners including the values on the farm and beyond yeah, it's hard to, um, it is hard. I mean, it's hard to explain to somebody why you should pay 10 times more for vegetables. The other day I was getting um, groceries at the Safeway and a woman was really upset at the price of Napa cabbage. You can go to the Asian grocery store and get it for really cheap. And so, yeah, then the question is, what are you getting for that money. What are you paying for? What are you contributing to? And I think that it's unrealistic to have any kind of like guilt associated with our consumer patterns. And that's, again, going back to the idea of um, people being directly engaged in making decisions. Everybody needs to be able to make decisions for themselves. You can pay a lot of money for fair trade coffee. You can pay a lot of money for local produce. You can pay a lot of money for a lot of things that make you feel good, but then not everybody can do all of those things. Mm-hmm. What is the responsibility in your mind for people who do have disposable income? And in D.C., there's a lot of people for whom, you know, $2 eggs or $6 eggs, like that's not going to make a difference in their lives. Um, like what's the responsibility of people who have disposable income to like support the food system that we want to see? I think everybody needs to be thinking about what you spend your money on as a whole. Um, A lot of focus seems to be put on the food economy and the food system, probably because I'm in it. So those are the kinds of questions that I'm being asked. But rather than say, you know, you should spend this much on eggs or you should, you know, spend this much on whatever vegetables, um, how much are you spending on your technology? <laughs> like, if you, how much are you spending on other things that you um, use your disposable income on? If you go to a, a group of farmers that are hanging out um, and you go around the table and see how many people are operating with flip phones or like how many of us have not bought a new article of clothing in several years, um, there's a lot of things that uh, even on our income scale, we are going to the market and spending that money on eggs or spending that money on local rice because we are valuing that food and we're not doing it on a high salary. We're doing it because we're making choices about um, what we want to use our money on and putting the value in food. You know, I think that people in this country just pay such a low percentage of their income on food compared to other countries. We need to value that more. What's going inside your body is really important, I think. I think food is medicine. You know, it's not my fault that the rents in D.C. are out of control. My, the price of a bunch of kale has been the same at the farmer's market for the entire 13 years that I've been in this industry, despite the fact that costs are going up. So at some point, we need to be able to have a conversation about that, about, like, your rent just doubled in the last 13 years, but the kale 
is staying the same price, something's wrong with that. Mm. Something is wrong with that system. The lack of affordable housing in the city is the problem, not the price of vegetables at the farmer's market. Right. True. Um, I have so many questions I want to ask now. I, I'm, I'm bummed we only have like eight minutes left. But, um, you know, there's... I, we could talk about, you know, farms. Because um, we, we had seen each other at the Young Farmers Conference up at Stone Barns. And one of the things that I really took away from that is to be a farmer in this day and age... Um, with the cost of land and everything else, you know, growing vegetables alone may not make for a sustainable business. And so many farms become like mm-hmm. event spaces or have alternate, you know, have second jobs um, in order to make it a profitable business. So we could talk about that and sort of your thoughts on like this farm as a multifaceted business beyond vegetable or production um or we could talk about and atara you tell me too what you think like dc with like the dc food policy council and you know to your point that you just made about how it's not the cost of kale per se it's like the fact that there's a real affordable housing crisis or um issues in transportation or income inequality and other respects um but like how are we tackling that like through the food policy council or other you know legislation in the city i feel like we could go in either direction yeah i'm i definitely am interested in learning about like food apartheid in dc and the infrastructure that kind of you know contributes to lots of inequalities in our food community well, I mean, I, you know, people talk about these issues of food access a lot. Um, I think that was last year. There was a big uh, grocery store walk or something like that where pe- yeah. people were walk just to show how far some people in the city have to go to get to an actual grocery store. Um, so having a, access to a store is really important. And, you know, this city actually subsidizes and offers grants to um, grocery stores that are going to be placed in parts of the city where they wouldn't otherwise have access to um, fresh produce. And so even in my neighborhood in Petworth, there's a Yes Organic Market on Georgia Avenue that was a recipient of one of those grants. And I can't tell you how many times, fewer than six, I have ever walked into that store and bought produce. I don't think that just having a place that has expensive produce in it means that you have given access to people to that produce. Those are two totally different things. And I think if we're willing to put in $40,000 grant for a store to be able to go into a neighborhood, but then still the people who live in that neighborhood can't shop at that store, there's a disconnect in that policy. And something is wrong with the way that our city planners are looking at um, their role. Primarily, um, I think a lot of times you see the Office of Planning taking on a role of what um, the businesses should be doing you know it's the laws of supply and demand dictate that um if there's not enough housing then somebody will come in and build it i don't think that we need anybody in the city government to be subsidizing what what eventually becomes rent skyrocketing rocketing out of control right we need our city people to be more interested in figuring out how um there's not a waiting list for people on section 8 housing and that kind of thing that is sort of like a side thing. But in terms of how it relates to farmers 
in particular, I, I think I'm interested in hearing as we talk about food justice, I'm interested in seeing open access to markets be more equitably distributed among newer farmers, among farmers of color. In the city, we often have a lot of focus on, well, um, there's not access in this neighborhood for fresh food. So you look at the people who are close by and say, "How? what are you going to do about providing access to that fresh, affordable food? And it's not that I don't want to do that. It's that I can't pay for it on my own. Um, and what we have in this city is a situation where, there, are, like we said before, there are a lot of people who are spending a lot of money on their food. And if we could keep that money in the city and generate that revenue within the city, it would make a big difference in being able to make sure that everybody had access at all the levels. Um, there are a lot of farmers that are driving in to the city and taking out you know, tens of thousands of dollars on a Saturday or a Sunday from a farmer's market and going back home and taking that money out of the city. And nobody is asking those farmers, what are you doing about food access in your rural area where you live? You just grew vegetables, put them on a truck, and brought them into a city so that my neighbors can pay you and fund your farm instead of looking at the fact that you live in your own food desert. You know, like as a city person, I go on weekend vacations um, out to West Virginia or, you know, you go to a cabin or you go to a beach or some, somewhere in the outer lying areas. And if you ever notice, you know, if you forget something, you forget your toothbrush, you have to go to the dollar store and you're in the middle of nowhere, the dollar store, the Walmart, this is where people in the rural areas are shopping and that's where you're getting that substandard produce. So I just am ready for some of these farmers to figure out how they can solve the crisis of food access in the rural areas and stay at home and open up space in our lucrative markets for the farmers who are in D.C. because that is how I get to answer the question of how do I give produce affordably and accessibly to people who can't afford it is that I also have to be able to have access to those markets where I can sell produce at a good price and make a lot of money. Mm. And because that market right now is not accessible to all of us in the same way. And that burden of giving away the vegetables for free is also not being held to the same standard in the same way. And I think that's what's not unfair. That's what's unfair. Mm -hmm. So powerful. So even more reason for us to uh, invest in a CSA uh, with three-part Harmony Farm, maybe in D.C. or wherever city you are seeking out, um, you know, your your neighbor farmer um, in production and uh, and making and and thinking that way. I've never been a part of a CSA. Um, I've always wanted to be, but I've found the pickup is my biggest challenge whether it's the location or the time but um i feel like i'm gonna find a solution there yeah we are busy in this city yes <laughs> we are not cooking at home a lot uh we are going to work events where we're eating um yeah yeah i tried to put in a lot of flexibility to our csa to try to make that possible um by selling half shares which not all farms do and then also um, letting the market style members skip weeks mm -hmm. um, to try to lower that 
burden yeah. of showing up. You don't have to show up every week. Right, right. And even if you do have a plethora of uh, things left over, quote unquote, perfect reason to batch cook something, invite a bunch of friends over, or if you have potatoes every week, you can just become an expert in all sorts of potato recipes. That's how I like to think of it when I'm shopping seasonally at the farmer's market, at least. Um, Gail, we could talk to you forever um, about three-part harmony, farm, food policy here in D.C. and beyond. Um, You've shared so many incredible insights with us. And um, to wrap things up, we just wanted to ask you a few takeaway questions. Um, And I think first and foremost, like, you know, what should we as D.C. citizens or, you know, U.S. citizens, people, uh, especially those of us who care about food, do to, you know, help create a more equitable food system in our everyday I think what everyone should do is just engage more locally, and that means um, have some personal connection to where your food comes from. Yeah, you're still going to shop in a grocery store, and there's going to be a sticker on your fruit that says it came from Mexico, <laughs> um, you know. But there's also going to be opportunities for you to become. Um, I, I say become a repeat offender. It doesn't have to be through the CSA program. Not all farmers like to do that. Some farmers really like to go to the farmer's market every week. Um, and that's a perfectly great way to support your farmer. Just become a repeat offender. Just get to know that person. Make sure that they know your name. Make sure they know your children's names. Um, know what you like. Um, have that con- connection, that personal relationship with someone Um, in the end, like that's what I was seeking when I went to volunteer at a farm, I was trying to become closer to my food and where it came from. And everybody should be able to do that on some level. Yeah. Thank you. And for our last question, where can our audience find you in real life and online also? Online at threepartharmonyfarm.org. Um, and there's a lot of, uh, Instagram and all kinds of buttons there that you can click, um, in real life look for me on my bike i'll be riding around (laughs) adams morgan dupont circle columbia heights petworth and you're accepting csa um like members at this stage still yeah we are we just started we have two pickups that start mid-march um one is at an elementary school and then one at our hub but then all the other five pickups start in may so um there's still a little bit of time to find find the one that works for you don't sign up for something that's stressful that's not that's not good for your farmer And you can sign up on the website. Yep. Yeah, there's a Google form. Great. Well, thank you so much for being here, Gail. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Um, Yes. For us, too. This is Atara and Ariel from Pineapple. We are so excited to be here with you, and we will see you next time. 